Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, with all the latest mental health-related news, including anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of negative habits, and how to make sense of media reports into the newest research about the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing mental health treatment, and trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome back, folks. Appreciate your listening in. This is the Wednesday, October 22nd, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope that you've been feeling well. And first up on tonight's show, I want to talk to you about an a research study that got a lot of play in the media, and with good reason. Uh, Many times you've heard me talk about, and you've heard uh, other media reports about how exercise helps either alleviate or prevent depression, right? Well, here comes another study, and this time it's a little more quantifiable, shall we say, because the conclusion was that exercising as little as three times a week, reduces the odds of developing depression by around 16%. This, according to scientists, came out last Wednesday. And for every extra weekly activity session, the risk drops further. Now, in a study conducted as part of a public health research consortium, the UK-based scientists said the relationship they found between depression and exercise points to ways to simultaneously improve both mental and physical health. Leisure time, physical activity, seems to have a protective effect against depression. If an adult between their 20s and 40s who isn't physically active becomes active three times per week, they would reduce their risk of depression by approximately 16%. Depression is one of the most common forms of mental illness, affecting more than 350 million people worldwide. It is ranked by the World Health Organization as the leading cause of disability globally. Treatment for depression usually involves either medication or psychotherapy, or a combination of both. Yet many patients fail to get better and suffer recurring bouts of the illness. What the research team did is they followed over 11,000 people born in 1958 or later, up to the age of 50, recording their depressive symptoms and levels of physical activity at regular intervals as adults. To assess depression, they looked at responses to the malaise inventory, a questionnaire designed to measure psychological distress at ages 23, 33, 
42 and 50. Participants were also asked how often they exercised. The results showed that people who increased their weekly activity reported fewer depressive symptoms, but those with more depressive symptoms were less active, particularly at younger ages. Each additional activity session per week reduced the odds of depression by 6%. Scientists noted that the link between exercise and depressive symptoms was seen across the whole population and not just in those at risk of clinical depression, uh, not just in those at higher risk of clinical depression especially. Now the study also found that people who reported more depressive symptoms than others at age 23 tended to also be less physically active, but this link weakened as they grew older. This finding is important for policies designed to get to people to be more active because it suggests that depressive symptoms could be considered a barrier to activity in young adulthood. The study adds weight to existing evidence suggesting exercise could be used as a treatment for depression as well as boosting physical health. If everyone was physically active at least three times a week, we would expect to see a drop in depression risk, not to mention the benefits for physical health, including reduced obesity, heart disease, and diabetes risk. It's important to note, however, that this study does not support any conclusion about exercise alone being a treatment for serious clinical depression, Uh, only that regular exercise, and again, only three times a week, folks, significantly decreases the risk of clinical depression. Well, you know, this just is more and more evidence that depression needs to be seen as a physical illness and as a public health problem. And as the uh, article about the study hints, it definitely should be seen as something that public health policy addresses, uh, making it more likely that people are going to exercise regularly. For example, you might not think of this as something that relates to the study we're talking about, but what about municipalities who take the time and trouble and set aside money in their budget to build sidewalks? That's right. That may sound strange to you if you come from a community where there's always been sidewalks, but believe it or not, sidewalks are not something that was always here in suburbia in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's the kind of thing, if you build them, they will come, meaning you build sidewalks, people are more likely going to go for a walk or maybe even a bike or a jog, even though that might not be convenient. So anything you can do, even something that you might not normally think of being related to depression, to get people exercising more often, more regularly, will decrease the risk of people becoming depressed. And along the way, their physical health certainly also will benefit. Now let's talk about a study that illustrates one of the key problems in accessing mental health treatment in this country. You know, we talk about how 
there is an underutilization of mental health treatment. There is a lack of availability of it. Uh, for too many people, it's too difficult to get mental health treatment. And therefore, you have a lot of people who suffer. You have families who have a hard time getting their mentally ill loved one into treatment. And you sometimes have tragic results when uh, a very small number of people with serious mental illness wind up taking their lives and along with that, the lives of others. So again, uh, the problem of difficulty of access with mental health care in, in this country is well documented and it's quite severe. Uh, but this article caught my eye because it's something that I deal with uh, on a regular basis in my practice as well, and that is hearing about how it's a very difficult thing for people to get an appointment with a psychiatrist, even if they decide they want to see one. Psychiatric appointments are scarce in major United States cities, according to this article. Patients calling to make appointments with psychiatrists in major U.S. cities may only be successful about a quarter of the time. According to this new study, only about a quarter of the time people able to successfully make a phone call and make an appointment with a psychiatrist. That's a staggeringly poor rate of success. And unfortunately, it's <clears throat> excuse me about what would be expected given how many patients come into an office on a first visit, including my office, and particularly when I uh, talk to them about, well, how did you come to uh, find my office and decide to come to see me, people will typically say they were on the phone over and over and over. And people will tell me at different times, well, I called a lot of different places, but yours was the only office that answered the phone or returned my call. So many places didn't answer the phone and never returned my call. This is a common refrain that I hear from first-time patients in my office. And certainly the author of this study uh, said the same thing. A colleague of mine at the Cambridge Health Alliance and Harvard Medical School in Boston. Now, for this study, researchers just called up psychiatrists 360 of them in Boston, Houston, and Chicago who were listed in a major health insurance plans provider database that of Blue Cross Blue Shield. They were posing as patients with either no insurance, private insurance, or government-sponsored insurance, and these researchers attempted to make appointments with 120 psychiatrists in each of the three cities. Although many patients may think psychiatric appointments will be covered and accessible if they have insurance, researchers were rarely able to make appointments. Now, again, the, the method they used is much like how people in real life go about trying to make an appointment with a psychiatrist. 
They don't know of one. Uh, they don't have someone close to them who sees one, whose opinion they, they trust about going to see that same person. Then, of course, they're going to go to their health insurance company, provider database, do a search, get a bunch of names and phone numbers, and start calling. So that's what these researchers did. Now, their findings were quite spotty, and it was quite difficult for them to schedule appointments. And this reflects the real-life situation that takes place when patients are trying to find a psychiatrist to see and try to schedule an appointment. Well, we have to take a commercial break right now, so we'll take a look at the specific results of the study when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Donna Fiducia, co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio, and you're listening to America's Web Radio, a most eclectic mix of conservative shows. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. And we're talking about some researchers who decided to take a close look at what happens when people try to make an appointment with a psychiatrist. Now, of the more than 200 psychiatrists who missed the first call, in other words, a patient had to leave a message, and get a call back, only 35 called back. Only 35 out of 200. That is a pathetic response rate. That represents very poor customer service. Begs the question, are these doctors so busy they can afford to just ignore phone messages from people wanting to schedule new patient appointments? And... Is that the attitude they have toward being available for care? I know in my office, I always make it a priority. I emphasize with my office staff 
please make sure we have returned all phone messages. No matter how long it takes, if it's not that same day, the next business day. But to me, not returning phone calls is just unconscionable. But <clears throat> let's take a look at what happened when people called in the first place. Now, on the first call attempt, researchers successfully reached only a third of psychiatrists to begin with. Why? Well, first of all, 16% of the phone numbers listed in the insurance company provider database were wrong numbers. Instead, the numbers connected to places like a McDonald's, a boutique, a jewelry store. So that's 16%, wrong number. 15% were not accepting new patients, right? So in that case, the researchers posing as patients did get through to the doctor's office, but they were not accepting new patients. I think that's actually surprisingly low. Um, if, if I were to have guessed how many of the doctors they successfully reached were going to say they're not accepting new patients, I would have expected that number to be much, much higher. Uh, so that means 15% uh, of the doctors they reached were not accepting new patients. That's, yeah, that's actually fairly low, I think. Now, again, so they tried to reach 200 psychiatrists who missed the first call, only 35 called back. Now, then they made a second round of phone calls. And they had secured appointments with 93 psychiatrists. That's about a quarter of the total number. Again, they were trying to make appointments with 120 psychiatrists in each of the three cities. So uh, that would have been 360 total. And they wound up with 93 actual appointments. Now, contrary to what you might think, the caller's purported payment method for the appointment did not make a difference in the odds of landing an appointment. In other words, it didn't matter whether the person was going to pay with insurance, a government plan, or just self-pay out of their pocket as to whether they were successful in getting an appointment or not. Although the Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance database in the study was obviously not accurate or updated, remember, 16% of the phone numbers were wrong outright. Again, as we talked about, that's the way many patients go about trying to get appointments. And I hear this all the time from the new patients I see that they call their insurance company, saw my name there, was close to where they live or work, Office staff answered the phone and or returned their phone call, and that's how they wound up coming to see me. But it's the norm for the patients who have a particular kind of insurance. Either they go online or get an actual paper copy of a list of in-network providers that supposedly accept their insurance. And then later you find out that either they no longer accept that insurance They've moved, their phone number has changed, or even if you do get through to them, 
they are no longer taking new patients or you leave a message and they do not return your phone call. Uh, these are the common scenarios. Worsening this problem is the shortage of psychiatric providers in the United States in the first place. Previous research has found that even primary care doctors struggle to refer their patients to psychiatrists. Instead, they often end up prescribing the medications themselves. Now, if it were the case that primary care physicians and psychiatrists would regularly and effectively collaborate on rendering psychiatric care, that wouldn't be a bad thing. Unfortunately, in practice, that is the rare exception. And while primary care doctors may be equipped to treat fairly straightforward psychiatric cases, that is certainly not a given. They do not have the specialty training and experience and expertise that psychiatrists do, but the problem is that there are too few psychiatrists and it is too difficult to get patients in to see them and therefore primary care winds up taking up the slack. Many primary care providers don't feel comfortable managing mental health issues. With more support and possibly more training, they might be able to do so. Successful collaborative care models between primary care doctors and psychiatrists have been implemented already in some areas of the United States. But again, even with these models, it's not going to match the benefits of someone being able to have direct access to specialty care in psychiatry. The larger backdrop to this study and the points it makes is that we need to rethink the way psychiatric care is accessed and delivered in the United States. And this would go a long way to alleviating a lot of the problems with access to mental health care and perhaps uh, decrease rates of suicide, perhaps decrease the numbers of these tragic murder-suicide cases that you hear about, even though they're very rare, uh, given percentage-wise of all the people who suffer from untreated mental illness. But as for patients, obviously as a result of this study we can confirm the perception that they have to be extremely persistent in order to get an appointment. And you know, this is, is very troubling. It's too difficult to access psychiatric care in the United States. And hopefully public health officials will take notice and uh, work with the health insurance industry to try to alleviate some of these access problems. Why is it, for example, that so many health insurance companies provider databases are hopelessly inaccurate and out of date. And why is it that the health insurance companies don't see it as a priority to keep those databases current? All right, next up, 
on Psychiatry Today. Here's another article that got a lot of attention in the media. Broccoli may hold the secret to improving autism. Now that makes a very catchy headline and or soundbite. But the reason I'm talking about this is this article is a perfect example of how the media can overhype something and people can read a headline or hear a soundbite and it leads you to a conclusion that may not be reasonable. But if you look beyond the headline or the soundbite, uh, there's a lot more to the issue than meets the eye. And instead of it being some kind of breakthrough that people who have someone with autism in their life can find helpful and useful, it's uh, actually a lot um, less to it than the soundbite or the catchy headline would indicate. So let's take a look at this finding. A dose of a chemical found in broccoli and other vegetables too, by the way, may improve the behavioral and social symptoms of autism in young men. May, not definitely does, according to a new small study. And I emphasize small. Uh, the, the smaller the study, the less firm the conclusion. And it's also the case that even if this did turn out to be true, people would have to eat a possibly unrealistic amount of broccoli and other vegetables to reach the dose of this molecule known as sulforaphane used in this new study. Uh, sulforaphane is a well-known com uh, compound present in broccoli. Uh, the, the extract product that was used in the study is not on the market. So don't look it up and think you can go out and buy it. Um, this is not available to, for purchase. It's not going to be hyped on the Dr. Oz show, or at least not yet that we know of. Now, sulforaphane is found in cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, and cabbage but more so in the raw vegetables than cooked. Previous studies have found that it inhibits some bacterial growth and it also may slow the growth of some cancers, which is why you may have already heard about the benefits of sulforaphane from broccoli. For this new study, researchers divided a group of 40 young men with moderate to severe autism spectrum disorder into two groups, one group getting varying daily doses of broccoli sprout extract, the others receiving the placebo, an inert capsule that did not contain any of this extract. All right, well, let's further explain the study and go over the results after our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. 
Did you know skipping doses of medication can be dangerous? If you have a chronic medical condition like diabetes or high blood pressure, it's important to take the medication prescribed by your physician. It is also important to remember that although you take a medicine to treat a condition, it is not a cure for the underlying medical condition. It is used to control it. For example, taking medication for diabetes will lower your blood sugar. However, if you stop taking the medication, the sugar will rise again. Changes in both diet and lifestyle, like adding exercise to your routine, are equally important. Working with your physician by following his or her recommendations is the key to controlling your disease and maintaining your health. Ask questions if you don't understand something. Taking control of your health is the key to wellness. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Donna Fiducia, former anchor at the Fox News Channel and now co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio. And you're listening to America's Web Radio. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. And we're continuing our discussion of this, I think, overhyped study showing an association between a healthful chemical found in broccoli, and improving symptoms of autism. We're taking a closer look at this to get beyond the hype. Now, as far as the study goes, again, one group got this sulforaphane chemical that's found in broccoli and other vegetables. The other group got an inert placebo with no sulforaphane in it. Researchers and caregivers didn't know which men received extract and which received placebo. And yes, all the study subjects were men, 40 young men. Autism is more prevalent in males than females. And they, the researchers and caregivers regularly rated the young men's behavior and social interaction once the study began, and then again a month after the study ended. And they did these ratings not knowing who was getting the real sulforaphane and who was getting the just inert placebo. And they rated the men with autism on things like irritability, tiredness, repetitive movements, hyperactivity, communication problems, lack of motivation, and mannerisms. These are all typical symptoms shown by autism spectrum disorder patients. The average scores on both scales were better from four weeks onward for the 26 young men assigned to the group who got the sulforaphane compared to the 14 who only got the placebo. 
The study results, for those of you who are interested, were reported recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Of the 26 young men given the sulforaphane, 17 were judged to have improved in behavior, social interaction, and calmness by caregivers and staff. There was little change among those in the placebo group. The sulforaphane didn't work for everyone, but for about two-thirds of the group, there was a noticeable improvement. They could tell who was on it, and parents could too. And there are several families who just couldn't stop praising it. Most of the improvements had disappeared by one month after the treatment, however. Researchers write that young people with autism tend to make more eye contact and have improved speech when they have fevers. They suggest that the sulforaphane somehow stresses the body like a fever with few or no side effects. Stress is not all bad because it can change the way some genes, potentially those governing autism, are expressed. The participants in the new study were closely monitored and did not suffer from fever, but most of what is known about the possible effects of fever on autism is based on only anecdotes and any connection is tentative at this point. Well, so if individuals with autism eat their vegetables, it should not do a lot of harm, of course, and it could have benefits. But these results need to be replicated before they can be confirmed, and it may turn out that this specific broccoli extract isn't the most effective form for people with autism. Further studies are needed to assess whether the link would be the same for women and younger children, because again, these were all young men in the study. And they also need to do studies on whether it may play a role in prevention of autism. Several clinical trials with sulforaphane are currently underway, examining its effects on other conditions as well, including asthma, prostate cancer, and schizophrenia. That according to clinicaltrials.gov. Well, so really there is not much to hang your hat on. Uh, a very tentative effect here. Uh, a very, very small study, only 26 subjects, all of them men around the same age. And, you know, really the, the article doesn't tell the story of the differences between the placebo and the sulforaphane extract in a quantifiable way. But this is at most an extremely preliminary and somewhat interesting finding. It is a very, very long way from this to recommending sulforaphane or any kind of vegetable extract as a treatment for autism. And I think it's a shame if media reports about this study arouse any false 
hopes among families who have uh, loved ones with autism. Now, even if this result is overhyped and it leads to people with autism eating more broccoli and other cruciferous vegetables, of course that's not a bad thing. It's a very good thing. And, you know, what is the possible mechanism behind this, even if it does actually uh, turn out that it works and larger studies confirm it? Is it this strange-sounding idea that the sulforaphane somehow stresses the body the same way a fever does? I personally think that's highly, highly implausible and smacks of some sort of bizarre pseudoscience. Why not look at a much more obvious, easy-to-understand explanation, which is that sulforaphane is a compound that you know we know has healthful effects in the body already and somehow or another it obviously must have healthful effects specifically in the brain perhaps it's an antioxidant effect we know that vegetables like fruits are high in antioxidants and we know that foods with antioxidants are good for the brain Uh, we know that Such foods help to alleviate and prevent depression. So it it seems entirely plausible uh, that foods rich in antioxidants would also benefit patients with other mental health problems, including autism. In any case, whether it's autism or any other mental health problem, eating a healthy, balanced diet is one way to try to maintain good mental health, not just physical health. And certainly, cruciferous vegetables should play a a role in in such a healthful diet, regardless of uh, the results of this study or not. Um, But certainly, extracts of uh, broccoli containing sulforaphane or anything else are absolutely not ready for prime time, as it were, when it comes to being a treatment for autism. Uh, So I sincerely hope that we're not going to wind up seeing them being hyped and and sold on TV or online or anything like that, or, or the Dr. Oz show, for example. I will keep you up to date as there are more developments in this story. Next up on tonight's show, here is a children's or rather adolescent mental health update and adolescent girls in particular. Uh, So those of you out there who have teenage daughters or granddaughters or friends or loved ones who do need to listen up to this. From stressed to, to depressed, Teen Girls Suffer More is uh, the title of this article. Navigating the many pitfalls of adolescence is a challenge for any teenager. But according to new research, girls are exposed to more stressful situations than boys, and the suffering doesn't stop there. Mental health experts have long known that stress can lead to depression. 
and that people who obsessively think about a stressful situation, uh, this is called ruminating, are at an even higher risk of becoming depressed. But in this study, which was published in the journal Clinical Psychological Science, researchers uncovered a more specific link. Stressful situations in which the teens were directly involved, such as an argument with a friend or parent, caused them to ruminate more compared with stress that was out of their control. For example, a death in the family. And girls were more likely to ruminate, which puts them at a greater risk of depression. These findings draw our focus to the important role of stress as a potential causal factor in the development of vulnerabilities to depression, particularly among girls, and could change the way that we target risk for adolescent depression. Researchers reviewed information from 382 boys and girls participating in a separate study on emotional vulnerability and depression. The adolescents completed initial evaluations related to their cognitive vulnerabilities and depressive symptoms, as well as three follow-up assessments spaced seven months apart. The results revealed that girls had more depressive symptoms at the follow-up assessments because they were exposed to a higher number of stressful situations than boys were. This caused them to obsessively think about their stress, which further exacerbated their symptoms. Young men tend to move on after a disagreement. It's much harder for young females to not be affected by a disagreement with a friend or particularly a breakup with a boyfriend. That has a lot to do with the fact that girls are often raised to be nurturing and caring. Approaching teen girls about their personal lives can be a stressful challenge in itself, and the article offers several tips for parents to use when talking to young girls, and we'll go over those after this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that sleep is an important weapon against infection? Sleep is important because it is restorative. During sleep, known as REM, the body recuperates and resets. For example, the immune system increases its activity and stress hormones drop. There is a correlation between sleep deprivation and frequent colds. The average adult should get 7 to 8 hours of uninterrupted sleep per night, and a child needs more since they are growing. Sleep hygiene is important to set a good foundation. Techniques to promote good quality restorative sleep include going to bed at the same time at night, avoiding alcohol or caffeine prior to bedtime, avoiding exercise in the evening, reading to a young child at bedtime, avoidance of drinking fluids late in the evening, and avoidance of taking decongestants at bedtime. If you are having problems sleeping more than once a week, you should see a doctor for further evaluation. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. 
You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Denise Simon. 18 hours a day, I live in a world as an intelligence analyst. What I find is reprehensible, what I find is terrifying, what I find is treasonous. The mainstream media has completely failed the American people. So join me for the Denise Simon Experience every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Donna Fiducia, former anchor at the Fox News Channel and now co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio. And you're listening to America's Web Radio. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. We're talking about how teen girls are particularly vulnerable to stress and therefore depression. They suffer more because of the tendency to ruminate So the article offers some tips for those of you who are parents of teenage girls in how to talk to them to help them with these issues. So let's go over them, and hopefully those of you out there who have teenage girls will find these tips helpful. Number one, don't attack the teenage culture. Parents tend to be derogatory about the way teenagers are today compared to when they were young. But mom and dad may want to be careful about how negative they are about their daughter's culture. Social media and smartphones are a huge part of her lifeline in the way she communicates. Criticizing Facebook or the amount of time girls spend texting is not going to help. And while I think it's very true that criticizing a big part of a teenager's social life and uh, cultural norms among their uh, peer group is uh, only going to serve to alienate teenagers from their parents. I actually think this also applies to boys uh, to some degree as well. Number two, don't make jokes about her self-image. It sounds obvious, but parents need to understand that their daughter's ears are perked up and notice every nuance in what is said. Even a seemingly harmless comment can cause stress in her world. I'll give you an example. Most women who suffer from eating disorders, whether that be anorexia, which is severe restriction of food and eating, or bulimia, which is a cycle of binge eating and then purging, most women who suffer from these eating disorders can trace the problem back to when a prominent person in their life said the wrong thing about how they looked and their weight. 
And oftentimes, this could have been apparent. Uh, so again, while you want to express concern about eating and eating habits and weight when there are legitimate health issues involved, uh, it's important with adolescent girls to be careful about how you approach that subject and uh, couch your words appropriately. A third tip, be available, but don't push. As a parent, you always want to let your daughter know that you are willing to talk about anything that is upsetting her, but you don't want to suffocate her. Girls of this age want their space. A blanket statement conveying that you are always there if she needs you will suffice. Fourth, be wary of your expectations. Sometimes parents have very high expectations for their kids, and if they are expecting their daughter to be in a popular group or to be a great athlete, it puts a great amount of pressure on her. No matter how much parents try to hide it, kids really know what their mom and dad are hoping for. And lastly, don't make light of her feelings. What parents might view as a trivial fight with a friend could be a huge deal for their daughter. She needs to know her feelings are legitimate, so saying something is not a big deal might sound like good advice, but it will make things worse. Instead, it be much more helpful to validate her feelings, but try to reinforce her own self-esteem and uh, reassure her of her own worthiness and uh, thereby decrease the tendency to ruminate uh, that it was her fault for whatever it was that happened. Well, I think those are good tips for dealing with teenage girls. Hopefully those who, those of you who are listening who are parents of teenagers agreed and will find those helpful. Now let's move on to a very different age range. Let's uh, talk about the elderly. And so now we're shifting to those of you who are in the sandwich generation. Maybe you have teenagers or younger children that you're rearing. And you're also caring for aging parents with health problems or you know, whether you have the, the kids you're caring for or not, if you are concerned about your aging parent or directly involved in their care, then you want to know about this, especially if your parent or other loved one has had a serious fall. It turns out that the elderly who have had serious falls may show symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Older adults who experience a serious fall may develop symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, in the days following the event. A study published in the journal General Hospital Psychiatry found symptoms associated with PTSD in 27 out of 100 people over the age of 65 who had been admitted to a hospital after a fall. 
Anyone who goes through an accident in which they feel their life may be in danger or they could get physically harmed can develop post-traumatic stress symptoms. Patients were recruited for the study while they were still in the hospital and assessed using the post-traumatic stress symptom scale, which measures 17 symptoms of PTSD. The researchers collected information about their background, marital status, previous mental health issues, and current health conditions, and about their fall, including where they fell, how long it took to get help, and the location and severity of injuries. The majority of patients had fallen in their home and had received help within an hour. The most common injury was a fracture. Women, people who were unemployed or who had less education, were more likely to report post-traumatic stress symptoms, as were those with injuries to the back or chest. Post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms were also associated with the number of other medical problems reported. The most common PTSD symptoms were feeling emotionally upset when reminded of the fall, a change in future hopes or plans, and problems falling or staying asleep. The finding that an injury to the back or chest, but not other types of injuries, was more likely to be associated with stress symptoms was not anticipated. Because patients were interviewed while they were still recuperating, the stress symptoms they experienced are expected to lessen over time. So while particularly uh, why injuries to the back and chest are more prone to trigger PTSD remains a somewhat of a mystery, something to be aware of. And again, those of you caring for uh, elderly folks, keep that in mind. Now, um, this next study is about how even small stressors may be harmful to men's health. Again, older men who lead high-stress lives, either from chronic everyday hassles or because of a series of significant life events, are likely to die earlier than the average for their peers. They're looking at a long-term pattern of stress. If your stress level is chronically high, it could impact your mortality. Or if you have a series of stressful life events, that could affect your mortality. The study looked at two types of stress, everyday hassles of such things as commuting, job stress, arguments with family and friends, and significant life events, such as the loss of a job or the death of a spouse. Both types appear to be harmful to men's health, but each type appears to have an independent effect on mortality. Someone experiencing several stressful life events doesn't necessarily have high levels of stress from everyday hassles. That is determined more by how a person reacts to the stress. So it's not the number of hassles, it's the perception of them being a big deal. Taking things in stride may protect you. Now, this research about long-term patterns of stress in men was published recently in the journal Experimental Gerontology. They used data from Veterans Affairs Normative Aging Study. They studied stressful life events and everyday hassles for almost 1,300 men between 1989 and 2005 
and then followed these men till 2010. About 43% of them had died by the end of the study. About a third who reported having few stressful life events had died, while closer to half of the men reporting moderate or high numbers of stressful events had died by the end of the study. Men who reported few everyday hassles had the lowest mortality rate at 28.7%. Just under half of the men reporting a mid-range number of hassles had died by the end of the study, while 64.3%, almost two-thirds, of the men reporting a high number of hassles had died. Stressful life events are certainly hard to avoid, but men may live longer if they're able to control their attitudes about everyday hassles, such as long lines at the store or traffic jams on the drive home. Coping skills are very important. The study gives a snapshot of the effects of stress on men's lives, and the findings are not a long-term predictor of health. Stress and other health issues can develop over a long period of time. So I'm really not sure how useful the conclusions of the study are. We certainly know that very major life stressors, such as job loss, loss of a spouse, uh, or God forbid, loss of a child, certainly are so severe and the level of stress so high that it can have an effect on mortality. But it's interesting to note that while it's less notable, the long-term impact of multiple daily stressors that are not so severe individually can also have an effect. And, of course, it's common sense to point out that, hey, if people develop better coping skills and are not so negatively affected by day-to-day hassles, much less serious stressors, they're going to live longer. Well, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is Donna Fiducia, co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. <laughs> 